Now, to your question, uh, Trig, uh, I think you're referring to Bible, bishop, and... Belief. Belief, right? Yeah. yeah. Belief is just the essential worldview of Christianity that runs so counter to how we conceive of reality. The way we conceive of reality is always based more on power, might, dominance. Uh, we're always longing to be the best shooter on the basketball team. Uh, we don't think about aspiring to be the person sitting on the bench. <laughs> we just don't do that. Yeah. We, we don't aspire to be the people who make the players on the court better. We aspire to be the star on the court, just the way we're hardwired, because all of us want to play God. Yeah. The original sin of Adam and Eve is that they wanted to be like God. Now, we do that in a, in a thousand different ways. And uh, so uh, the, the, these three Bs refer to a very different way of being in the world. Our belief system is our understanding of Jesus Christ as God become human and all the implications that that involves, the work of the Holy Spirit and so on. Bishop has to do uh, with an office that, that predominated very early in Christianity, but the bishop was not some guy wearing a big hat telling everybody what to do, <laughs> mm -hmm. but the one who was most likely to be martyred first. Interesting. That's fascinating. Nobody was aspiring to be a bishop in the second century. Yeah. Because they knew it might cost them their life. Yeah. Uh, as Gregory the Great said in the, in the late sixth century, the bishop should be the servants of the servants of God. Wow. That is so good. So bishop as servant. And the third Bible, that is the story. Yeah. The story of how God uh, is working in the world. God created the world and put us in a garden of beauty and opportunity so we could create and imitate God, but always under God's lordship and kingship. We decided to rebel against God. We poisoned the garden. And now God has begun a story, beginning with Abraham, that's going to restore the entire created order, and it's all going to happen through us who are the crown of God's creation. Amazing. Hey, welcome to the locker room where we break down sermon stories and scripture for the race of our faith. You guys are about to hear audio from just a dear human being, Dr. Jerry Sitzer. Dr. Sitzer is a professor emeritus of theology and senior fellow at Whitworth University. He specializes in the history of Christianity, Christian spirituality, and religion in American public life. He is such a gift to the church. Students have voted him the most influential professor 10 times, and he's written nine books, including A Grace Disguised, which is a book on grief and his own personal story of loss and walking through that with the Lord, The Will of God as a Way of Life, Water from a Deep Well, and his latest book, which will be the majority of our conversation, is called Resilient Faith, How the Early Christian Third Way Changed the World. Heavenly Father, we are just so grateful uh, to sit around this table and talk with another brother in Christ. And uh, Lord, you have just prepared so much for us to do in our lifetimes before the foundation of the world was even set up. And so we just ask that you bless this little thing that you're asking us to do today. 
and that it would be for your glory and that it would help develop and sanctify the people that would hear it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Bless you, God. So, Dr. Sitzer, um, as I said before, I read this book and I was stunned by the circumstances that led you to reading that book, losing multiple family members in one full swoop had to be the most difficult thing that you've ever walked through. And yet on the other side, you, you not only testified to God's goodness amidst the pain, amidst um, the suffering, but then wrote a book about it. What was that experience like having to actually put pen to paper about something so traumatic? Well, <laughs> that's, that's a hard question to answer, uh, Trig. Uh, I felt like it was a divine calling to do that. It wasn't even my idea, really, to write that book. I had a really close group of friends that walked with me after the accident, which occurred in 1991. And uh, just to recap for uh, listeners, I lost a daughter, Diana Jane, age four, my wife and my mother, who was visiting us for the weekend. I survived, obviously, as did three of my children, Catherine, who was eight at the time, and David, who had just turned seven, and John, who was two. John was seriously injured, but has since recovered. And now they're, they're all married. Uh, they all have their own children. They're doing well in life. Four, and I remarried uh, 13 years ago after 20 years of widowhood. And four of our five kids live within five minutes of us and nine out of our 11 grandchildren. So there's quite a full circle uh, there to tell in terms of a uh, story. Anyway, about mm. three years after the accident, uh, uh, several of my friends who had really walked very closely with me uh, suggested, I think, about writing a book. And I said, I just couldn't do that. And they said, you know, sometimes you have to respond to duty, uh, to the obligation you have to, to use your gifts for the greater good of the church and society. Uh, you're a, a good writer. You've had a, a, a tough experience. You've navigated it with at least some degree of uh, grace and success. And so I wrote about an 80-page book of theology on suffering. And uh, we sat down in my living room to discuss it. And uh, it was a great conversation. They liked the theology. They had walked through it with me. They thought it was fresh and so on. And then finally, uh, there was this deafening silence for about a minute. And one of my good friends leaned forward and said, but you're not in this book and you have to be in this book or it's just going to become a book of abstract theology. Wow. There has to be a storyline in it. Well, I mean, it does make sense. I mean, the Bible has a storyline, doesn't it? Yes. The Bible tells a series of stories and theological reflections on how God forms a people to redeem the world and finally comes as Jesus Christ. I also had a great model to follow, and that was Augustine's Confessions. Now, none of us are going to be able to write to that level. He <laughs> was unusually gifted and used his gifts to the glory of God. But he gave us a template. I call it a theological memoir. Mm -hmm. How he did theology in light of, of his understanding of the Christian story and his own story and how those two uh, are integrated together. And so really borrowing from Augustine's model, I tried to write a theological memoir where I was in the story, but in the end, the story really wasn't about me and a tragedy. It was about God and how God works 
in human life to uh, redeem people and, and ultimately transform the world. So that was the model I followed. And after I was done, I took this book and I laid it literally on a communion table in our chapel at Whitworth. And I entrusted it to God and said, it belongs to you now. It does not belong to me. And I walked away from it. I let it go. Wow. So it's not really been a, a, a defining moment. I mean, obviously, the yeah. experience was, and my response to the experience was actually more important than the experience. But I got back to the work of being a university professor, raising three kids, and uh, trying to serve the community and the church as best I could. So it's been a kind of sideshow for me, Trig, more than it's been a dominant show. I had a choice about turning it into a career because I got a lot of speaking engagements early on, and uh, it just never felt right to me. So it's been a minor calling, not a major calling. Hmm. No, that's actually really encouraging because mm -hmm. you felt like you needed to be faithful in this small thing, and you, yeah. you laid it before the Lord, but then you, you, you got right back on um, with what the Lord had for you which kind of leads us to the will of God as a way of life. How did that book start percolating in your heart and mind? Well, and percolating is really the right word there, Trick, because uh, in the writing I've done, uh, with maybe a couple of exceptions, things have been in me for a long time and on my pages of my journal before I ever sat down to write a thing. And sometimes I had aha moments where I would wrestle with ideas, I'd read, I'd accumulate over sometimes 10 or even 15 years. Water from a Deep Well has done well, and that book sat in me after I studied and studied for so long. And then in an airport after a canceled flight, I had five hours and I sat down and entered one of these zones, this liminal moment, yeah. and wrote <laughs> about 12 pages and outlined the entire book in one sitting. So that's kind of how my brain uh, works. So in this case, this is what happened. I got my PhD at the University of Chicago in American Church History. And um, my mentor, Dr. Father, was really famous, a famous church historian, kind of the dean of church historians, still alive, by the way. I think he's maybe 98 now. And uh, he only stopped communicating with his PhD students about two years ago. So, I mean, just a remarkable man, flew around the world, read everything, you know, one of these kind of people. And um, I wrote uh, a couple of articles after my PhD was done. My dissertation was published in a book. And I, I had this trajectory set to be an American church historian. And I was following that pathway. I had a great research project that was following up on my dissertation on post-war America and sort of the religious milieu. And all of a sudden, in September of 1991, everything changed on a dime. Hmm. All of a sudden, I found myself having to uh, try to be a university professor, move toward tenure, and raise three kids. And I realized over time, going to or attending scholarly conferences and doing a lot of research in the summer was simply done. I couldn't do it. I didn't have the time. And uh, then a few years later, uh, all of a sudden, a grace disguise emerges, as I've said, uh, through the encouragement of friends who felt like it was kind of an obligation that I fulfill uh, to the human community. Uh, then uh, The Will of God is a Way of Life. Both of those books I wrote in the 90s. Well, two things are important to note is that I wasn't planning on that trick. 
<laughs> neither of those books were uh, on my career trajectory. Mm. Uh, it was kind of a came out of nowhere. It was a, it was a surprise, but it ended up being another kind of grace disguised in a way. And so I wrote those two books. Well, they taught me how to write for a larger audience, popular writing or trade book writing, you see. And uh, scholars don't know how to write like that. Well, then when I turned back to scholarly work in the 21st century, I had these skills developed that I wasn't planning on developing that made me a better writer for the scholarly community too. I mean, think about how strange that is, that you learn how to write through a terrible tragedy. My point is, is that the will of God is really about how we're attentive to God in the moment which we find ourselves. The most important thing is what I'm doing before the face of God now, this moment, literally talking with you. Yeah. And when I'm done, the next moment, and trying to find God right where I am now, not obsess about the past, God will cover that with his grace and somehow work it out redemptively. Not the future, because that's beyond my control. I can't change the past. I can't control the future. Mm. But I can be entirely attentive to God in this present moment. So, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and everything else will be added unto you. Or as Paul writes in Colossians 3, I think it's 17, um, strive to do the will or the work of the Lord right now, or my favorite, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That has as much to do with raising three children as it does to writing a scholarly book. It's now. Find God now and do the will of God you already know. Wow. That That's is so beautiful. Oh, profound. I'm thinking of that Latin phrase, um, quorum dehu, which means yeah, before, the right. face of, before the face of God, that we live our lives before God's face. Yeah. Abram. In everything. Yeah, with everything. <clears throat> Even but, the little things. They all have a cumulative effect. And God is able to weave things together in a way that we'll never comprehend until the story ends. And we can look back and see it all as a whole. But right now we're in the story and we don't know. And there are going to be surprises ahead for all four of us here in this conversation. Amen. We, in some cases, wouldn't have chosen those surprises, but they come to us. Uh, here's another example. So I, uh, my wife, uh, Patricia, we married 13 years ago. Uh, she knew my first wife. And I remember talking to my sister uh, uh, and her husband, uh, really close friends of mine, Maybe 10 years after the accident and remarriage came up, I was absolutely committed not to remarry till my kids were out of the house. And my wife said in jest, you realize, Jerry, you might actually know your future right, wife right now. Huh. And she may be married to somebody else. You may actually be her friend. That turned out to be true. Wow. It just blows my mind to think about. Not only that, her two girls were good friends of my son's. And they worked at the same camp together. Well, now I'm married to this person. And I'm the grandfather to their children. If you had asked me, um, you know, 30 years ago, would the story turn out this way? I would have laughed in your face. 
I taught a Sunday school class in a uh, downtown church for about nine or 10 years after the accident. And my wife was the paid soprano soloist there. Uh, we were very active. And Patricia, my wife, was in that Sunday school class for nine years. Oh, my word. I looked at her every Sunday and never anywhere. There was not one atom in my entire body that would have imagined that that's the person I would be married to. Oh, So I don't know. I mean, we have to be in for a ride of mystery here. And the most important thing is that we seek the face of God every day. Wow. Amen. And try Amen. To lay it, let it play out moment by moment as we turn to God and say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help me to be attentive to you and attuned to the work you're doing right now in my life and in the world. So how do we actually release the past and let go of the future? How do we actually do that? <clears throat> yeah, because I think so many times when we talk about discerning the will of God, we're so future focused. We like, are. What am yeah. I going to do after college? What am I going to do You know, after grad school what am i going to do five years from now and what you're saying is that it's so present i'm going to borrow from augustine here uh, which i do from time to time uh and um he he in one of his uh, uh concluding chapters in the confessions he writes reflections on time he recognizes as all of us do through our own experience that we are all creatures of time that is to say, we have a memory which relates us to the past. We have hope which connects us to the future, but we're bound to the present. It's the only time we have. So uh, a word about the past. The past comes to us in two ways. It comes as a consequence of past actions. You got in your car this morning and drove to work. Um, that was something that you did. You're now living with a consequence of that. Here you are interviewing me. <laughs> we, we also experience the past as memory. Consequence is unchangeable. Memory is kind of like a muscle that can change. We don't just remember, we remember in a certain way and how we remember depends largely on our worldview. Yeah. You, can, you can talk to two people who have the same experience and they remember it differently. And the reason why they do is somewhat subject to personality and so on, but it's largely subject to their worldview. One remembers it more redemptively. The other one remembers it more negatively. See, we carry to our experiences of the past and to the consequences a memory that's informed by a belief system. Now take the future. So the memory is unchangeable, or I should say the past is unchangeable. We carry it forward as a consequence and as a memory. The future isn't here yet. So when we worry about the future, we're literally worrying about nothing. <laughs> because we don't know what it is yet. That's, that's so a, that's true. That's so good. I just, I'm so, literally, I cannot believe the things I'm hearing right now. You're, you're just, well, there's so We much. worry about nothing. I mean, it's so easy to, when you think about it. When she said it, I'm like, of course. But when I'm doing it, I think that I'm actually controlling the future somehow. Yeah, see, you can't control the future. And uh, what we're worrying about is how we imagine the future, not what the future is going to be because we don't know it. And uh, so we relate to the future as expectation. 
Now, this is what Augustine says. G Augustine says that the past and future are actually not real. Uh, to God, they're real, but then to God, all times are the present. God is as alive 10 years ago and 10 years from now as he is right now. All times are the present to God. He's like a circle around the line of time. Uh, we're bound by time. Um, so what he said is that though the past is not real, it's real as a memory, and though the future is not real, we're not there yet, it's real as an expectation. So this is how he puts mm, it. It's good. Um, the present of the past is memory. The present of the future is expectation. The present of the present is attentiveness. So my suggestion is that we think about how we remember the past and remember it redemptively. Trusting that somehow the hand of God is in it all in ways that we cannot understand, and we have to trust God for it. A good example of this would be Joseph. So, you know, Joseph is in prison in this story, and the baker and butler are thrown into prison for some impropriety by uh, the court, court of Pharaoh. Uh, Joseph meets them. By now, he's kind of in charge of the prison uh, uh, prisoners. And they both have these terrible dreams, and Joseph interprets the dreams. And think about what's going on in Joseph's head. He thinks at that moment, God has given me the ticket out. Hmm. Uh, God has set this up so that I can be released from prison and get on with my life. He interprets both dreams, uh, 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 obviously, accurately. To the baker, it turns out badly. He dies. He's, he's executed. But the butler is returned to his position in the court of Pharaoh. And the last thing that Joseph says to the butler is this, remember me before Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. So yeah. he's thinking, God has set this narrative up perfectly. And guess what the butler does? He forgets. Yep. I would suggest that's the worst moment of Joseph's life because now he thinks God has betrayed him. God set him up, dangling this possibility right in front of his face and in the last minute yanks it away. Well, here's the thing. If Joseph had been released from prison when he thought God was going to do it and God should do it, it would have been good for Joseph, but for nobody else. Hmm. He oh, would have gone on with yeah. his life, he married some a nice comfortable life. girl yeah. and lived a comfortable life. That's exactly right, Rod. But he has to wait. And then as you know, two or three years later, what happens? Pharaoh has a dream. And I love this line in the story. All of a sudden, the pair, butler says to Pharaoh, oh, I remember my faults today. There was this man I yeah. met in prison two years ago. Well, now Joseph is called out of uh, prison, appears before Pharaoh, interprets the dream correctly, is appointed to second in command over Egypt. And you know how the story ends. He preserves his family. He preserves Egypt. He fulfills God's plan to move his people back down to, uh, down to Egypt and then back up to the promised land. But he had to wait for it. Yeah. And it, it did not follow the narrative that he had constructed in his own head. So my suggestion would be this. When we relate to the past, we relate to it in terms of redemptive memory. God is at work in ways that I don't understand. And we relate to the future as preparation. And that throws us in both cases back to the present moment. And that's the moment we become attentive to. Sometimes life is going to be clear when we look into the past. And sometimes it's not.
Sometimes we're going to look into the future and we're going to think we've got it figured out. And then God is going to do something that's going to be surprising, shocking, maybe wonderful, maybe horrible. But God is in this story. That's the decision we have to make to believe that. Yeah, that's great. So the whole equation that you give us of past, present, future, the most important thing then is our worldview. Is that, am I hearing this right? I would say worldview, our, our, our knowledge of the Christian story, the redemptive story that works itself into our bones and our attentiveness to God in the present moment. Yeah. What is the will of God for me right now? I mean, this is Joseph too. Joseph later in life said what you intended for evil, God intended for good. So he could look at the past and one person could interpret that. That was, your life was miserable, Joseph. I mean, you're the victim of all these things and yet, no. And he was. was, And he was, exactly. (laughs) And all that was real to him. I'm sure the heartache of having to spend another seven years in prison was devastating to him. Yeah, and all of this... To be able to say, God is moving heaven and earth for my good, even though it hurts so much. That's a game changer. Oh, it is. I think about the story of Ruth, too. I mean, um, you know, she follows her her mother-in-law, Naomi, back uh, uh, from her own culture, her own language and people, uh, back to uh, then Palestine. Um, I mean, it wasn't even Israel yet. And uh, moves back to Bethlehem where Naomi grow up. She's a stranger. She's a foreigner. She has to figure out how to do life. She does, you know, through this accidental encounter with Boaz, which was no accident at all. She finally remarries. At the end of the story, she holds this cute baby. She's married to a man a generation older. And Naomi has a grandchild. It's kind of a sweet little bedtime story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> little does she know that she is holding in her arms the grandfather of the king of Egypt, uh, of, of David. Yeah, I know. She is holding in her arms uh, an ancestor that would lead to the birth of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And she, when she dies, she doesn't know any of it. It's beautiful. That's the story we're in. Now, you know, our roles are going to be different. We don't know. Uh, but uh, think about Billy Graham's grandmother. She didn't know. She's praying for that little child after he's born. Lord, I entrust him to you. I pray your blessing on him. Uh, I mean, there are all kinds of things going on here that simply elude our gaze and our knowledge. We're in a big story here. And in the dailiness of life, we have to somehow keep that in mind. In my mind, that's why it's so important to know the biblical story. And not just the big story, but all the little stories that, that somehow move into it, like Uh, the Ruth story or the Joseph story and lots of other examples like that so that we situate ourselves in a narrative that has uh, redemptive power to it but does not whitewash our suffering. Absolutely. Well, you talk about these moments and let's be honest here. I mean, a moment is a moment in time but then there's moments of suffering which make a moment that much more profound, heartbreaking, devastating. And when you look at a life, much of life has suffering, those moments. But then when you look also 
at the story of God, uh, they're also, it, it's capturing those moments of suffering. It doesn't try to sugarcoat those experiences. It, it doesn't, it, no. Right? It, it's like very raw and real in capturing it. And then you have God himself who's writing this story. And he is not only comfortable with the moments, including moments of suffering, but he then enters the very story itself and then doesn't just enter the moment of the story, but the moment of the story for him becomes so much of it is suffering. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and yet in all of this, there's so much redemption through not just the moment, but through the suffering. Um, I don't even know what I'm trying to say here, but I... No, you're working out the implications of living into that story. I'm going back to your own story, uh, Dr. I just feel like, you know, when that hit you in 1991, that tragic moment of devastating loss, that in some ways too, that, that grounded you even that much more in the moment and made you less of a theologian in the terms of a professor, but more of just a human being in the world who loves God and God is present in this moment, working life and redemption and even hope and you walking that out and then even being able to articulate it and convey it to other people who are fellow sufferers. And yet in that, this is what I what I heard you say because a lot of people could have almost become celebrities out of that. But you're like, at the end of the day, though, I don't want to be defined by my suffering. I want to be defined by Christ, and 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 suffering was a part of that. But I don't know. I it's just had beautiful. to express all of this. Yeah, I think the re- the relevance is is not though just associated with suffering. I mean, that's kind of the big event that we all like to pay attention to. And, um, uh, and that's certainly true in, in um, my uh, life. I will say, though, uh, Rod, that the most important thing was not that moment. I mean, it was hard, obviously. It was really painful. Um, there are lots of other people who suffer in very different ways. It's the moment-by-moment stuff that we do that doesn't seem to have much significance, that is just as holy. Yes. This is just as relevant to the person who's never had that big moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, relevant to the person who cares for an ailing child, um, who has a, a job that has a lot of uh, boredom associated with it. I mean, it is the most applicable way to live, to simply be attuned to the work of God in every moment we possibly can. To pray over that, uh, to, to pray God ahead of us when we're going to work to invite God into our families, into our neighborhoods. It's less about the big moments than it is about the little moments of every day. I and that, to, that uh, has been a big, that has been a, a yeah. one of my, I don't want to say a secret. I think it's a, a secret for all Christians is to recognize the hand of God is at work in all things. Yeah, it's... I, I, when, when my wife and I have a, a, a ritual we follow every day, we have a called the, the lap set. I get up at 530, I make coffee. I take a peek at the headlines. Uh, yes, I still get a physical newspaper that tells you about my age. <laughs> and uh, I respect that. She gets up at six and she gets her coffee. And then we, she sits on my lap. We, we have a hug. And then we pray, we pray over the day. 
Now, she's a mental health counselor. She works two days a week, full days. And I pray every time on those days, God help Pat to be attuned to the work you are already doing in the life of these people. Amen. Love it. You're not stepping into a vacuum. You're not the secret. You're not the player. God's the player. Look for what God is already doing. <laughs> okay, so I love that. Amen. Can that, I that's, that takes the pressure off and because we're looking at the life of Abram right now, and I just said this on Sunday, we're now to chapter 14. And yeah, you can look at Abram's life and say he lived this big, huge life for God. But when you really look at his life, his life was really about mundane faithfulness. You know, he, he really- Yes, was, it is. It was greatness through just the simple, mundane thing of walking and walking with God, learning how to walk with God, learning over life how to walk like God and at times walking for God, but it was just walking, yeah. mundane, in the mundane things of life. You know, he's just, so he's can just we, a nomad. Can we talk desert. about that a little bit? Yeah. Because ultimately what he's doing is just making simple decision after simple decision. And that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about. How do we actually, because you talk about simple obedience as a way of life and God's clear commands for life. Because... I have conversations with people often who over mystify the will of God and they feel that if they're not hearing from the Lord in air quotes uh, about certain decisions in their life that they can't go out and make those decisions. So how do we actually make just the mundane basic decisions every single day in life in light of the story that we find ourselves in? Yeah. Well, boy, I've contemplated that a lot. I want to go back to what Rod said. I, this is why I resist being kind of a celebrity of suffering here. I mean, I'll admit my experience was a big experience. It uh, garnered a lot of attention. Uh, but it's not really the point, is it? No. <laughs> I mean, that did happen. But I'm thinking about people who endure a tough marriage yeah, uh, for 40 or 50 years or who have to raise a child that, say, is autistic and is really hard or uh, people who uh, endure the same job that has a lot of boring tasks involved. I mean, we really need to steer away for, from the big story and get down to the little stories that we live every day. So now to, to your question, Trig, I, I try to do three things. I don't always do them successfully, trust me, that get away from the big story to the little story, which is the more important story. Number one, I really try to trust that God is God. And that is not easy to do because <laughs> yeah. we, we all have some evidence at our disposal that God is simply not around. Joseph had that evidence. I mean, mm -hmm. most of us do, uh, where from day to day, we don't see the signs of God's presence as we would like to. And we have a kind of expectation of God to show up with the big stuff. I mean, think about Elijah running from Jezebel. Uh, that was her name, right? Yeah, Jezebel mm -hmm. and uh, Jezebel. And uh, after this mountaintop experience in Mount Carmel, it wasn't enough for him to have confidence and faith. Well, <laughs> then she threatens his life. He flees and actually is suicidal, said to God, take away, take away my life. I'm no better than my father's. Well, he's commissioned to go on a 40-day journey to Mount Carmel where the first big event occurred between Moses and God. And God showed up, what, in thunder, lightning, big wind, big <laughs> show. And that's what we always want God to do, the big show. Mm -hmm. Well, Elijah makes it there. 
hides in the cleft of a rock. Uh, there's wind, there's fire, uh, there's an earthquake, and no God. And then I love this. All the texts use a, a line like this. And then there was sheer silence. And that's how God showed up. In, in power. Silence. Profound. The sound. So, uh, so the first thing is you got to trust that somehow God's in the story and you know it's true because Jesus came and he was the human face of God. We know who God is and we know how God shows up because we know Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the son of God and the human face of God. So that's number one. And number two, uh, we practice some disciplines. We practice the way uh, that make us more sensitive, make us more open to God, make us more attuned to God. We read the biblical story, we memorize a little bit of scripture, we pray through our day, we gather ourselves together and offer ourselves on the altar of God every day. Hmm. So those are the things that we do uh, both in public and in private that make us more attuned to God and what God is trying to do. It's like hoisting a sail to catch the wind of God. Yeah. The sail doesn't do anything. It doesn't get us anywhere, but it captures the wind of God who does get us somewhere. And the third thing is, then when we're out in the world, coaching our soccer, doing volunteer work, going to our jobs, raising our kids, befriending our neighbors, spending time in a small group, having coffee, playing golf, whatever we do, we're always asking, where's God showing up here? How can I be attuned to it? and step into the work of God. Hmm. Those three things, uh, I think over time have a cumulative effect and make us sensitive to the work of God in any given moment in our own in internal world and in the world around us and in the people we know. So I have a question um, with your American church history knowledge, like where did we go wrong? Because I'm totally resonating with everything that you're saying. Where do we go in the in wrong in the church? Because I feel like we have a generation, which I'm on the cusp of, seeking fantastic experiences yeah. of God and experiencing Him in a supernatural way as a way to legitimize the fact that God is real. He wants me to be a part of His activity. And it comes at, with something that's fantastic, whether that be a church service or I heard this from God. And what I hear you saying is just this mundane act of faithfulness that we're just attuned to God in a very humble, normal, small way. And I don't think that's necessarily what some of us have been taught to seek. Yeah, well, an excellent question. Obviously, there's a lot in American religious history, and I'm, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to focus on only one group in the larger family of Christianity in America. We've got Roman Catholics. Mm -hmm. That whole big branch. We've got mainline Protestant. That's a big branch. Uh, we've got uh, black Protestant, which is another big branch. So I'm going to address just evangelical Protestantism, which is actually a fairly recent movement. Mm -hmm. It really emerged in the late 17th and 18th century. Most people would have heard of John and Charles Wesley, maybe George Whitfield in America, Jonathan Edwards. What you'll notice about all those figures is that they they, the leaders of the early evangelical movement, had root systems in deep, uh, deep traditions. 
John and Charles Wesley were Anglican. They cut their teeth on the Book of Common Prayer, which is probably unfamiliar to 95% of the people listening to this podcast. So they were, they were evangelicals. They believed in conversion. They were very entrepreneurial. They grew the church dramatically. They were great disciple makers. But their root system was in a great tradition of practice, of worship, and so on and so forth. Same with Edwards, same with uh, uh, George Whitfield, and so on and so forth. The weakness of evangelicalism is not its emphasis on conversion, prayer, the immediacy of miracles, its entrepreneurship. It's that it tends to have a shallow root system. Interesting. Hmm. So and you're we saying, have to drive yeah. that root system deeper without neglecting the strengths of evangelicalism. Of all Christian movements, it would match Catholics, when it came to its entrepreneurship, Catholics have a special way of doing that. That's their religious orders. Evangelicals start nonprofits. Do you realize that George, uh, what's his name? He was the leader of the anti-slavery movement in England. Um, oh, his name el eludes my mind. Oh, Wil Wilberforce. Yeah, Wilberforce. Richmond, he supported 69 evangelical nonprofits during his lifetime. There was a Christian ministry to chimney sweepers. Wow. For example. I mean, this is what evangelicals have done. Yeah. We, we start things. We love to be on the cutting edge. We love to ride that crest of a wave. We're great in conversion. We're great in personal Bible study. All of those things I don't want to lose. They've all benefited my life. I'm profoundly enriched by them. But we've got to have a deeper root system, both theologically, in worship, and so on. So we don't become miracle junkies. Mm. Mm -hmm. We don't live with a superficial faith because that makes us susceptible, vulnerable to heresy. Okay, to, so to distract to distraction. Yes, that 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 make us swerve away from the great tradition of the Orthodox Christian movement that was birthed in Jerusalem at the, on the day of Pentecost. Yes, and we're coming to a point now where that evangelicalism has been tried and because we cut ourselves off from our roots it is now i think we're experienced the lacking aspect of it it's 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 found wanting and how how specifically do we recapture those roots like what are the what are those roots in your mind well i mean there are a lot of things i would say the first thing rod would be the just the importance of the great tradition of historic orthodoxy that really drives us back to the early church in the fourth century. I mean, there were a lot of things they didn't do, but just read them on the incarnation. It will blow your mind. I, I have a reading group rod of about 25 young pastors in town. About two thirds of them are church planners, lovely group, very a trans denominational, but deeply committed to Christ. And we spent, um, early, uh, December, just reading some of the church fathers on, on the incarnation. Yes. Well, they all made their way into quotes during their Christmas sermons because it is so rich and so profound. I actually have a chapter on that in Resilient Faith where I yeah. just quote a bunch of them. And it moves you to tears. Wow. So we have to go back to foundational issues like uh, the Christian story, mm -hmm. uh, the wonder of the incarnation, God choosing to become human because he came to us as a human being, and none of us would have guessed that. 
If we had been God, we would have come as Socrates or Hercules or Caesar Augustus yeah. or Alexander the Great as somebody with a great mind or great power. We would have come with privilege and power because that's how we define greatness. Mm-hmm. Well, how did God show up? I know. And yeah, that's, that's mind-boggling. I mean, in born in a stable. Think about Jesus' career. If there had been no resurrection, he wouldn't even make a footnote in history. Mm-hmm. He never traveled far from home. He never wrote a book. Yep. Uh, the movement that he inspired abandoned him uh, in the last week of his life. I mean, there's just so little there. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians uh, yeah. uh, 1? Is the foolishness of God is wiser than human uh, wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Because God pulled off what none of us could have imagined when he chose to come to us. So there's a theological root system, I think, that doesn't have to be too complicated and sophisticated, but will fill us with wonder. And then there are some Christian practices that we tend to neglect. Uh, A number of evangelicals are kind of discovering monasticism. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're encouraging their churches and people to write a rule of life, for example, to develop healthier rhythms. This is basically borrowing from the playbook of Benedictine monasticism, driving that root system deeper in what the church has been doing on and off for 2,000 years, so we're not as susceptible to fads and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. That's what I'd Amen. encourage. I in say. your book, um, The Resilient Book, uh, you talk about that, how Christianity became the main or the only uh, way, the third way ceased to be the third way and became the only way and then there was a respond to that which is the monastic movement Uh, so do you see that like as a repeat here like history repeating itself kind of in the trends of um Uh, no i don't history doesn't repeat itself but we can certainly learn from it not because it repeats itself but you are right in this we've had to carry the burden and sometimes the opportunity of uh a christianity that has been the dominant worldview in the West for for many, many hundreds of years now. Uh, We call it Christendom. Now, I don't demonize Christendom. I mean, higher ed uh, came out of Christendom. Medical care came out of Christendom. How about some of the great literature that came out of Christendom, like Dante, for example, or Augustine? Uh, I mean, there's so much in our heritage, our art, architecture, I mean, it's endless in terms of the wealth of this movement, where Christianity was kind of the dominant worldview that prevailed. It was the air people breathed. Mm-hmm. Whether they believe personally or not is almost irrelevant. If you had interviewed anybody living in what we now call Europe in the year 1000 or 1200 or 1600 or even as late as 1800, 99% or more would have said, well, gee, of course I'm a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't mean that they had a, quote, personal faith as we would define it as evangelicals. But that allows for cultural achievement because you've got a kind of shared worldview. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We can't assume as much anymore. Even 50 years ago, if you would have had a former Catholic or Methodist or something join your church, you could have assumed they kind of knew the Christian story. There was enough in there, the Apostles' Creed, and a weekend class would have pretty much brought them up to speed. Not anymore. I yeah. think the the level of knowledge and practice, uh, the kind of familiarity with Christianity is 
rap fading pretty rapidly. It's the most robust in the great generation, anybody over 75 or 80. And then it diminishes as you go down uh, from one sort of age bracket to another. And so I think we have to, f uh, to start farther back. That doesn't mean early Christianity was the ideal or golden age. There's never been a golden age. Every age of Christianity has had its strengths and its weaknesses. But what we can learn from the early Christian period is they had to figure out how to grow the Christian movement in a culture that was antithetical to it as a worldview and hostile to it. Yeah. So can you talk about the three ways that existed as the church was birthed? All right. So the first way was the Roman way, the way of traditional religion in the Roman world. Rome was uh, a great power and uh, it used religion basically to uh, support the dominance of Rome itself. It could absorb new religions into, into the larger landscape and simply invite them into the into the uh the uh the the, the company of the gods you know the uh and so on um it was a very transactional religion there were feasts there were festivals if you would have said to anyone do you have a personal relationship with the god they wouldn't have known what you were talking about <laughs> it was not the source of their ethics philosophy was so it was a kind of functional religious system uh that supported the religion of rome itself which was rome yeah. And the power of the emperor. The, the divine nature of the emperor simply reinforced the power of Rome. The second way was the way of Judaism. It was more isolated. It had practices and a belief system that allowed it to endure under the dominance of uh, Babylon, under the dominance of Persia, under the dominance of the Greeks, under the dominance of Rome. And it continued to survive against all odds. How? It developed a very clear boundary marker between Rome and itself through its very strict practices, kosher eating, circumcision, dress codes, synagogue worship, and, well, a hundred other things that set it apart. Well, as you know, when Christianity was birthed, it was birthed in Judaism, it was birthed in Jerusalem, and all the first converts were Jews, and they were practicing Jews. They went to the synagogue on Saturday to study. They went to uh, uh, Jerusalem and to temple three times a year for their festivals. They practiced circumcision, food laws, all the things I've just named. Uh, but then the Christian movement could, could not stay confined. I mean, the good news was better news than everybody was expecting. <laughs> and it began to break into, uh, into the Samaritans and then into fellow traveling Jews and Gentiles. You know the story. Mm -hmm. And a, a second kind of center of operations was born in Antioch. And it became the capital city for the mission to the Gentiles. Well, they began to reach Gentiles, and Paul and his followers decided not to require a conversion to the culture of Judaism before they became followers of Jesus. They decided at the Jerusalem Council uh, in the year 50, 51 or so, the stories told in Acts 15, that they would not require a double conversion to Judaism first. They would, they would honor Judaism, but they would figure out how to keep Christians um, faithful to the gospel. And what they did is define a third way. And that third way was not cultural visible practices that the Jews followed. It was a life 
of discipleship. Hmm. You read the first half of Paul's letters, what do you read? It's a theological vision of the gospel, the power of the gospel. What's the second half of his letters? How to live that out in a pagan world. And it's not you following food laws. It's living a different kind of life. It's the imitation of Jesus. So the Christian way is not simply uh, the way to new life through Christ. It's a new way of life, imitation of Jesus. Disciple making. Yeah. And it's actually a both and, right? I mean, it is a both and. You first have to know him, not just even know about him, but you have to know him. That's right. Uh, the Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen. And, and, but then that translates, that, that gets walked out in, in a way, in a path, a third way. Um, uh, I put it this way. I love one of my uh, key texts is uh, a Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, that is the face of Jesus Christ, are being transformed from one degree of, degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And that transformation is character formation. It's discipline. It's investment in God's work in the world. All of that, Rod, is based on our gazing yeah. at the face of Jesus, who is both our Savior and Lord and, and example. Now we're back to that Latin phrase, quorum Deo before yep, the face of God, just gazing into the face his face. Yeah. So and, the, you know, with fit, in fits and starts, with lots of failures along the way, they were able to create a movement by the work of the Holy Spirit that carried them through uh, Roman hostility, sometimes outright persecution, suspicion at the least, persecution at the most, for 270 years. Yeah. About eight to ten generations before Constantine was, quote, converted to Christianity in the year 312. Now, that's why the title of your book, Resilient Faith. I mean, that required such resiliency, <laughs> you know, through Seriously. all of that. You know, I don't want to idealize any era or generation, but generally speaking, historically, the church seems to be a much more what Jesus intended the church to be under harsher times rather than when it has its place of power and privilege. Would you agree with that or not? Uh, no, I wouldn't actually, Rod. I think we just have to adjust to the circumstances as they are. I mean, uh, yes, in the sense that it tends to force decision, and we probably clear out uh, on the margins people who are more culturally Christian than Christian. In, in that limited sense, sure, persecution tends to have a, uh, have a purging effect, and we tend to have a leaner and meaner church because the cost of entrance into it is much higher. Mm -hmm. In that limited sense, yes. But when Christians are recognized and uh, to some degree privileged or at least allowed to function uh, free of the harassment of the, of the larger social order, they can also be a lot more creative and ambitious with what they do. Mm -hmm. So you look at periods of uh, Christianity where uh, Christians uh, were not suffering persecution, look at what they launch, look at what they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. They build hospitals, they build churches, they write literature, they, they create nonprofits or religious orders that, that go 
everywhere and do everything. I mean, it's really an impressive. Now, we can also abuse our power. That's the risk of being more culturally acceptable. It, well, there are two risks. Number one, more too many cultural Christians. That's what happened in the fourth century. Mm -hmm. I mean, there have always been cultural Christians, but it's a critical mass that emerges when you start to experience and enjoy privilege and power. The church fathers of the fourth century saw this and mention it in a lot of their sermons. I mean, yeah. they see the problem of too many Christians, but too many cultural Christians at the same time. Uh, but you also see uh, amazing achievement, literature, writing, architecture, art, and so many of the things that I've mentioned, institution building. You guys have a church building, don't you? We do. Yep. You're not, you're Bare not, bones, house, but you're yes. not a collection of house churches. Yeah, it's true. Yep. And today, uh, right below us, there's probably 50 to 100 homeless people that are just here getting all their needs met. Um, okay. This building serves us, yep. but through it, we serve the city. Amen. Thank you for doing that. But I so think what you I, just said, I'm glad you disagreed with me. Because well, there's no ideal period. Yep. You have to adjust to the circumstances that they are and find what God is doing. Sorry, Rod. No, I'm glad you disagree with me, though, because I think a lot of times we look at huge swaths of history and, you know, we say that whole time period for the church was defined by crusades and slavery and things like that. When actually, if you look at all the little people, who love this big God and are just living humble lives for, for their king, there was a beauty to it um, in all fields and aspects. Like you said, schools, hospitals, orphanages. Uh, the church has just been about these things. This is what we do. This is who we are. It's this is what we do. Uh, Arad, you said it so well. Thank you for that clarity. And uh, yes, but and and avoid the abuse of power. Yes, I mean one of the things that bothers me right now is the evangelical bandwagon when it comes to the Republican Party. Now I'm not talking about Donald Trump. That's not my point. <laughs> uh, the Democrats have done it just as much, but in a different kind of way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There has to be a certain degree of transcendence and detachment. We belong first to the kingdom. Yes. Amen. Yeah. I, there is no such thing as an American Christianity. There's only Christians living in America. Amen. And America will be much, much more faithful and do much more good if we do not deify the nation. You can preach that all you want. Um, and I think, yeah, with that election coming up, yeah. it's just a temptation for American Christians to look to a human being, a politician, yeah. that they think can just bring us back. But we have that human being, that, that God, man, that man, God, Jesus Christ, he is Amen. King, right. And mm -hmm. he unleashed a kingdom that transcends. Um, and one day revelation five says, we're all going to be gathered around that, that lamb, that King's throne, worshiping him. And we get to work towards that day. And there are going to be people at that table that will surprise us. Yes, there will. And, and get this, we may, we may be at there at that table. And some people are going to be surprised we're there. <laughs> I know a lot, Will. Um, but I want to I want to stay on this theme because you're talking about power. And one of the things that I loved in your book was the chapter on authority that Christians functioned by a completely different form of authority. Yeah. I want to quote you. You said authority in the early Christian period functioned like a 
circulatory system, a vast network of arteries that circulated gospel blood from one central organ, the heart. The heart was Jesus Christ who lived a public life, taught and trained and commissioned a large and identifiable circle of disciples. Can you expound on that? That's just a beautiful picture. And then what were kind of the three pillars that were the sources of authority for the church? Um, Obviously, in the face of Rome, who had all of the power and authority in some ways, at least culturally speaking. Well, I mean, a circulatory system is inside the body. We don't think about it much. We don't see it much. But we, we benefit from its function literally every second of every day. Uh, by how the bloodstream works. I mean, how, how many? How many? If, if we don't have a disease, how many of us think about our liver, or how many of us think about our blood circulating? We just take it for granted. But it's the, it's the system that keeps moving life through mm-hmm. us. Well, we Christians should be that bloodstream for for culture. It's a, it's a, it's basically a variation on the theme of salt, leaven, and light. I'm just going to add blood to that. I love it. We move blood. We move life wherever we go by how we treat people, by how we share the, uh, the, the, the name of Jesus, by how we serve, by how we see need and meet need. Most of what we do is quiet. Every once in a while, there's going to be a big burst, a big explosion. But, you know, Jesus disappointed a lot of people. Or when, when Elijah went up on that mountain, he was expecting God to show up in a big way, not in sheer silence. Uh, there were many times when the Pharisees asked for a sign and what did Jesus say? I'm not going to do it. Uh, the only sign is going to be the sign of Jonah. That is a call to repentance. Uh, God does not always show up with, um, the, the hurricane and the wind and the fire. He shows up in quiet ways and that's what we do. Yeah. We're bloodstream. Now to your question, uh, Treg, uh, I think you're referring to Bible bishop and belief belief right yeah. yeah belief is just the essential worldview of christianity that runs so counter to how we conceive of reality the way we conceive of reality is always based more on power might dominance uh, we're always longing to be the best shooter on the basketball team uh, we don't think about aspiring to be the person sitting on the bench. <laughs> we just don't do that. Yeah. We we don't aspire to be the people who make the players on the court better. We aspire to be the star on the court, just the way we're hardwired, because all of us want to play God. Yeah. The original sin of Adam and Eve is that they wanted to be like God. Uh, we do that in a, in a thousand different ways. And uh, so... Uh, that the, these three B's refer to a very different way of being in the world. Our belief system is our understanding of Jesus Christ as God become human and all the implications that that involves, the work of the Holy Spirit and so on. Bishop has to do uh, with an office that, that predominated very early in Christianity, but the bishop was not some guy wearing a big hat telling everybody what to do, <laughs> mm-hmm. but the one who was most likely to be martyred first. Interesting. That's fascinating. Nobody was aspiring to be a bishop in the second century. Yeah. Because they knew it might cost them their life. Yeah. Uh, as Gregory the Great said in the, in the late sixth century, the bishop should be the servants 
of the servants of God. Wow, that is so good. So bishop as servant, and the third Bible, that is the story. The story of how God uh, is working in the world. God created the world and put us in a garden of beauty and opportunity so we could create and imitate God, but always under God's lordship and kingship. We decided to rebel against God. We poisoned the garden. And now God has begun a story, beginning with Abraham, that's going to restore the entire created order, and it's all going to happen through us who are the crown of God's creation. Amazing. That's just, a, we get to partner with God to that end. Yeah. So well, another thing that's, that's interesting about the overlap between <clears throat> what we're going through right now in this early church period is we have an obsession with identity right now. And we are told yep. at, by our culture that we have to identify ourselves primarily by those secondary identities that you discuss in the book. What was the role of identity in Christ for the early yep. church? And how does that inform the way we look at our identity now, especially as the culture continues to scream that we have to primarily find our identity in our race, our height, our position at work, our sexuality? You name it. And we do it in, a, in so many different ways. And instead of picking on our easiest targets right now, I'll use myself as an example. I'm white. I'm male. I'm American. I'm middle, upper middle class. I'm educated. I'm married. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm an author. I'm a professor. I have a title. Well, think about all of that, all that cultural power I have. And how does Paul evaluate his own cultural power in Philippians 3? Yeah. <laughs> if anyone has confidence in the flesh, I have more. Yeah. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrew, uh, Hebrews, etc. See? But whatever gain I had, I counted as, what's the next word? Loss. 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 Not neutral. No. Loss. Because yeah. those symbols of status and power kept him from knowing Jesus. So what I want to suggest is that a Christian understands their primary identity as being a person who's been made in the image of God. That image has been severely marred by sin and by our location and culture. Mm. And God has made us through Christ a new creation. So all of the Christian life is a matter of a journey of becoming who we already are in Christ. Who we already are in Christ. And that new identity in Jesus bleeds into all our, our other identities. Because look, I'm still white, I'm still American, I'm still male, I'm still married. I have a story, I have a degree, all of that. But that identity in Christ bleeds into it. Well, how so? Making it subject to being a servant instead of a master. Hmm. Uh, learning how to serve my wife and my children and all my grandchildren, how to use my social status and education in a way that's good for the social order and not just for me. See what I mean? Mm -hmm. It bleeds into it so that it, over time, transforms all of those secondary identities. So when it in the sense, this is this is why I liked you said earlier. We're going from grace to grace, or the, we're being transformed. 
So in one sense, we are transformed, but yet I like that word journey. Uh, this, it's a journey that we're on, and the journey involves working in and working out Christ and our identity being in Christ and not all these other things. I mean, Irenaeus uh, said, Rod, uh, he lived around the year 200, died in 202, I think. He said uh, that we will be transformed one, from one degree of glory through all of eternity because God's glory is inexhaustible. <laughs> now we're back in the church fathers. Wow, that's... I mean, it's an amazing idea to think about. That it is. It, it's a dynamic view of transformation. It's not, uh, it's not a life just in this earth. It is literally a constant journey uh, we won't be dealing with the power of sin anymore in the new age, but we will be always creating, always loving, always growing mm. because God's glory is inexhaustible. Mm. Yeah. So, I, I mean, so I like, uh, it, for me, it's very personally meaningful to think that uh, my identity is both formed by my cultural location, my heritage, my education, and so on. Uh, but it, those identities, I call them secondary identities, are always going to be transformed by my primary identity of being a new creation in Christ. Wow. What you're saying is actually um, illustrated by Jesus, I think, in John 13, when he's washing the disciples' feet. Because oh, he says to Peter, you, you called me Lord and you called me Master. Lord. And he says, what you've said is true. That is who I am. I am the Lord and the Master. But what I've come to do, you see, is to serve. And so he doesn't deny his identity primary of, of who he is, but then he reframes his identity to be something new and different. You, you said it as uh, better than anyone could. That's exactly right. I mean, that's so ironic. I am your Lord and Master. <laughs> now imitate me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I've, actually, I've actually cut that out of my Bible. I just, it's too much for me to deal with, so I, I've eliminated it. <laughs> I love it. Yes. No, no, I know, but it's true. I mean, I think we all have to come to grips with the reality that you talk about the story that we're living in. We have to remind ourselves that that's the story that we're called to live in too. You know? Yeah, that's right. Oh, and uh, one of the things that I really appreciated about your book, which got me motivated to dig into it again, was <laughs> your description of Augustine's City of God. Hmm. Can you describe how he sets up this, <laughs> just go for it. Can you describe that, the book and what he's setting up as far as one cast, two plays, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean, he, he, uh, he wrote this book in the wake of the, of the invasion of the, of the jewel of uh, Mediterranean civilization, the city of Rome, after it had been uh, invaded and sacked for three days by a tribal group from the north. I mean, that was unthinkable. It would be like ISIS uh, ransacking Washington, D.C. for three days. I mean, it, it was inconceivable that a city of that size and sophistication mm. and history could ever be overcome, not by the Persians, but by a tribal group. Mm. And it became illustrative of the decline of Rome. Well, there was an intellectual who wrote a book uh, saying that the fault lies at the feet of Christians. And Augustine took up pen, as Augustine always did, and wrote a 750-page book that was really a book about history and a philosophy of history called The City of God to answer saying, no, 
Rome did not decline because of Christians. Rome declined because of Rome, its worldview, yeah. its practices, its immorality. It the feet lies at, at the fault lies at its own feet. But anyway, in the course of this, he won, he gave us a lesson on how to conceive of history, and he said history really tells two stories simultaneously. The interesting thing is that those stories are so woven together that they they're one story. Uh, the analogy that I think works best, and he defined them as the city of God, the city of man. The city of God is God's story, how God's going to redeem all of human history and the human story and the created order. The other one is the city of man. That is only about human achievement and man's quest to replace God. Tower of Babel, for example. Now, he acknowledged that sometimes human achievement could be grand and glorious. I mean, uh, Augustine loved culture. So it wasn't as if he's demonizing the whole thing. I mean, he would say, you know, Republicans did achieve some good things and Democrats did achieve some good things and we build beautiful buildings and so on. But in the end, that story is about human pride and human destruction. Hmm. So I would put, I would give you this analogy. Imagine um, two stories um, occurring at the same time, or two plays occurring at the same time, using the same props and the same cast of characters on the same stage. Hmm. But there are two stories going on ultimately, or all, uh, at the same time. And we're playing a role in both. That's so fascinating. I love that. That's, that's what blew story, my mind in the book. I was like, the way you so simply put that, that picture resonates with me because now it gives me... Anyway, I, I don't want to interrupt. But it does mean we need well, to no, see I mean, the right you, you, story. You get it exactly. Wow. I'm, I'm playing two roles at once. Yeah. Everybody is playing two roles at once. Not everybody knows they're playing two <laughs> yes. roles at once. So interesting. But Christians, we know that there is another story going on. It's often the more invisible one, the quieter one, yeah. the one that eludes, um, uh, eludes our, our sight. Yeah. But it's still going on, and that's God's story. It's not a separate story. It's not on the other side of Pluto. It's here. It's now. And that's the story we need to step into. And live into with all our heart. And yes. It, but yet, in non-sensational, just mundane faithfulness, ordinary, like I like to say, like hobbits, just, you know, <laughs> living and you know, life, little people. We can't choose our role. I mean, there are some people in God's story that are going to be, on in this world, very famous. Mm -hmm. Augustine. Yep. Okay? And Great. My story's much quieter. Yep. I'm not going no one's going to be reading me 1600 years from now. Yep. They are reading Augustine. So what? Because when we get to heaven, mm. the clarity of that story is going to change. I love what Lewis does in in The Great Divorce when the, this traveler from hell is on the outskirts of heaven. George MacDonald is the tour guide and he comes on this huge parade and he says, oh my goodness, this must have been a super famous person uh, on earth. And oh, George MacDonald looks at him and of course, you got to imagine this great Scottish accent and says, oh, uh, she's one of the great ones, he said, but only in heaven's view of history, not the earth. You would have never heard of her name on earth. Yeah. Isn't that but fascinating? But she's famous here. Oh, 
It's so, so everything changes perspective. Now, obviously, we're going to admire Augustine in heaven, too, because he was amazing, although he made his mistakes and erred in some ways in judgment, just like all of us do. But our perspective will change. Uh, I'll put it to you this way. Billy Graham's grandmother will be as famous as Billy Graham in heaven. Amen. Mm. Yeah, that's Amen. well said. This reminds me of a reel that I just recently watched, and it's a mom picking up her eight-year-old from school. And during the school day, they had had auditions <coughs> for the nativity. And he got in the car all excited, and he said, Mom, I got, I got one of the main parts. Of course, he's got a Scottish accent, too, so it comes out beautifully. He's like, <laughs> I have something significant, something central. And she's like, oh, really, son? Tell me about it. Are you Joseph? And he's like, no. Are you one of the shepherds? No. Are you an angel? No. What are you then, son? Tell me what you are. And he goes, I get to be the door holder. I'm going to open the door for the players as they come on and off the stage. Can you believe it, mom? I'm the door oh, holder. Well. And it's so beautiful because if we could just yeah. see life like that, that's, he's like, I got one of the most important integral roles today. And we just don't, we see life as so, wanting to be so fantastic, so central. Uh, that's a great illustration. The door holder. Uh, what, what does it say in the Psalms? Uh, I'd rather be a door a keeper mm -hmm. yes. in the house in the courts of God. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, praise God. I want to be honorable of your time, but I want to ask you one final question that I'm really interested about, which is in light of everything that we see currently now speaking to evangelical Americans, how do we live right now? What is your encouragement to the church in America, the Gen Z, the Gen Alphas that want to live for Christ in an ever-changing culture that is moving well, towards post-Christian. Yeah, I mean, that's that's uh, really impossible to answer, I, I guess. <laughs> I, I'd say two things. Let's renew our commitment to the kingdom, God's story, uh, that transcends uh, all earthly stories, uh, God's kingdom. And one of the signs of that is we're going to be renewed in our commitment and our love for the global church and not just the American church. Mm -hmm. That I share more in common with a Christian in Vietnam I do with the next door neighbor that doesn't follow Jesus. Amen. Now, I'm going to love that neighbor next door because that's my neighbor next door. I don't know anybody in Vietnam, but that's my family. Amen. So we renew ourselves to God's kingdom work. Now, sure, I'm going to vote. Although sometimes I choose not to vote in a particular election because it requires too much compromise. But we do not identify with any other earthly moment to the degree that we identify with the kingdom. Do you realize that in the 50s and 60s and 70s, it was more likely that Democrats would go to church than Republicans? It's interesting. So all that has changed. And mm -hmm. uh, I think that the current evangelical movement has over-identified with one party or at least done it uncritically. There may be good reasons to. I don't, I'm not dismissive of that. Uh, but um, when you do it uncritically, you do damage to the kingdom work in the world. I just had, we had a young couple over here with their young children just last week for dinner and uh, both church dropouts, lovely people. We know their parents really well. Or, or, or their dad really well. Their mom died last year. And um, uh, the, the, uh, he looked at me and said, I can't tell you what a turnoff the evangelical movement has been to me. Mm. And it's because of the political nature of it. Yeah. Mm. So we are doing damage to the cause of Christ. Now, again, I'm not saying voting Republican is wrong. Don't 
misunderstand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's it's irrelevant. Yeah. There are bigger things before Amen. us. Yes. And it should be the kingdom. Bless God. And uh, what we've done is we've turned a political party into the kingdom, and it's gonna it's gonna do damage to the work of God over the long haul. Now God's still God; He's gonna work it out. Yep. His story's gonna continue. I think that the reign of the kingdom of America is probably going to decline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we might need Rome dead. We might need Augustine's yep, books. Might need to get confessions and City of God back out again and start reading them. Yeah, really. I mean, think about past kingdoms. How about the Christian, the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire? Where is it today? I know. Wow. How about the British Empire? Where is it today? Yeah. Boy. On the contrary, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is transcending all of those. And the kingdom it the, is. The quiet movement of the kingdom of heaven has been able to maintain a constant through all of those rise and falls with the empires because yeah. there are people that stayed faithful to that mission and not the political mission they were of the yeah. time in which they were alive. I know we have yeah. to wrap this up, but I just want to say to you, um, first of all, I can't thank you enough for being a part of this. And wow, did you live into this moment for Jesus Christ? Amen. No, thank you, Rod. This is what my heart feels right now uh, in light of you, in light of what you've been in this moment, that I want to know Christ. I want to know him. And him crucified. And yeah, him, oh boy, yeah. that's, so, that's thank my you. heartbeat all the way. I can Rod, feel it. In the last half hour is where my, my heart is right now. I mean, I, I go back to a grace disguise full circle here, and I, I, I did that. I think I was supposed to do it. It's done good, done good work. But what we're talking about now is what really matters to me. I'm actually working on a second book, a sequel to uh, Resilient Faith, and it's about Christendom. I can't wait. And the way Christendom bleeds into how we function as Christians. I'm also working on a book uh, that's going to be a new catechumenate. Oh, really? I love that it's been so evident to me. If you go on, you type in Jerry Sitzer on Google, you can find his webpage, and it says, A Bridge Between the academy, and the church. And that's so beautiful to me because I feel like we need more of those as the academy and the church continue to seemingly have marital issues, we might call it. So I'm just grateful for your witness. And it's obvious to me that God has woven your life to become that uh, and that you've been attentive to that moment moment after moment. And now here you stand and I'm having a conversation with a professor and yet it, it doesn't feel highbrow, yeah. highly academic. It's just ministered to me. And so I'm thankful for that. And I'm also not surprised that you've been voted the most influential professor at Whitworth 10 times. <laughs> so I just want to give you a little brag there. Yes, God. Um, because, yeah, this has been very, very edifying. Yeah. So just thank, well, you, thank you, thank you, thank you. For, for joining us. This is going to tremendously bless our church. Amen. And you get all the glory. Oh, thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, you've been great partners in this. You guys are very refreshing to me. I'm meeting your type uh, in podcasts and some travel and so on, uh, really around the world. I call you guys ex-evangelical evangelicals. That is, you're thinking a little bit bigger picture here. You're creative and entrepreneurial. You're deeply committed to the historic Christian faith and the gospel. You're young. And it's been really fun for me to kind of brush up as kind of a minor player in this company of people. It's just delightful. I, 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 
I spoke uh, uh, at Bridgetown, as I mentioned, last September, and there were about 700 pastors and many more online, average age, maybe 35. And I just left that environment with hope. Yeah. There is a, there, these are new sprouts. Let's go. And I they're, love it. They're borrowing from the history of Christianity. They're trying to drive a deeper root system. They're not apologizing for the strengths of evangelicalism. They're trying to add to it. Yep. It's, it's, I'm 73 years old, and it makes me hopeful. Bless God. And even that last piece you said is, is important. Like, we don't have to be embarrassed of our king and his kingdom and where that's rooted in his word and then the beautiful aspects, how it's played out in church history. Um, yeah, because I see that too. I see it as, as an attempt to correct mistakes from the past, this, this embarrassment almost. Yeah. I, I am an evangelical, but I, I don't want to be embarrassed I should be aware of the places that my generations before me have aired, but I also don't want to be embarrassed of the heritage that gives me life. Yeah, that's right. And borrow. Christians should be good scavengers. Yes. We're always borrowing. We're always borrowing from best practices. So yes. Benedict, who is a Roman Catholic monk, uh, if he if he gives us a model of writing a rule of life, then let's write a rule of life. Uh, who cares whether he's Catholic? Let's go. I love it. That's so good. I just feel like we got to pray. So would you pray for us to close? Heavenly Father, thank you for these new friends uh, uh, rooted in the gospel. Uh, thank you for your church. Thank you that this happens all the time. Uh, we discover people and realize we, are, we belong to the same community. We answer to the same king. We're in the same story, and it is so good. <laughs> Bless these folks every day. Draw them to yourself. Uh, teach them to love those around them. Help them to be faithful in difficulty and faithful in prosperity to you. And keep growing that church, not just in size, but in depth and commitment. Use them as salt, leaven, and light. Help them to be that circulatory system in the city of Grand Rapids. I pray this in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Bless you.